So have you ever had a hard time cleaning your plate? You know, the pork chop was good, the mashed potatoes were great, but getting that last Brussels sprout down was a bit of a chore. That's a hard one. In 1917, President Woodrow Wilson created the U.S. Food Administration. And one of the things that the Food Administration was designed to do was to create strategies and implement them for helping Americans eat less food. Now, why in the world would they need to eat less food? Well, it was World War I. President Wilson, along with many of the other leaders, felt like that a key to winning the war was to use resources wisely, and this included the use of food, to cut down on food intake and be able to use that food in other ways and in wiser ways. One of the pledges of the Food Administration went like this. At table, I'll not leave a scrap of food upon my plate, and I'll not eat between meals, but for supper time, I'll wait. It's not Shakespeare, MC Hammer, but it has a little bit of a ring to it here and there. In print ads, they would take it even beyond the pledge, and they would actually put these two words on some of their print ads, clean plate. The idea was to to have a, a plate with smaller portions and to eat everything on your plate And therefore, you wouldn't snack in between meals and you wouldn't waste food. Now, after World War I, the food administration was shut down. But in World War II, we see that there were still the same kind of rationing strategies put into place. In 1947, the the clean plate idea came back on the scene with something called the Clean Plate Club. Elementary schools around the country created the Clean Plate Club so that elementary students could do their part in the war effort and learn how to ration and take care of food. Now, what started off as an encouragement during wartime, a a wise use of food, of course turned into a haunting phrase for children all over our country over the last 60 years, right? How many of you parents or grandparents, you remember them saying to you, hey, you know what? You can't get up from the table until you clean your plate. Or, no dessert, mister, until you clean your plate. How many parents and grandparents have said that to your children? You see, back in the day, there was a need for rationing. And over the last 60 years, we haven't had a need for rationing like was seen during the two world wars. In fact, we don't really have, generally speaking, any kind of food shortage over the last 60 years. So that gives a whole new picture to the idea of cleaning your plate now. Because now there's not a shortage of food. So all you have to do is just look at the kid on his third trip back from the buffet, right? This is third plate. It's loaded with chicken nuggets. It's loaded with French fries. And over on the side, a a big pile of gummy bears. And he hasn't even gone to the ice cream bar. He hasn't gone to the chocolate fountain yet, but he is loading up on all of this stuff. Medical and nutritional professionals are saying that the whole idea of cleaning your plate is not all it's cracked up to be anymore, partly because now the plate is full of stuff that they probably don't need to be eating, or there is way too much on their plate. It's the kind of stuff that Slim Goodbody would not give two thumbs up to when it comes to how they eat and what they are doing. So the whole picture that we have here is that there has been a a shift in the idea of cleaning your plate, and that possibly now cleaning your plate would be a bad idea, depending upon what's on your plate. But you know, cleaning your plate is not just a nutritional conversation. It's also a spiritual conversation. You see, just like food, 
You could have a, a clean spiritual plate, and that might give the appearance that you're a good moral kid. And you take out the trash, and you clean up your room, and you make all A's and B's, and you honor mom and dad. But what if I were to tell you that having a clean plate, spiritually speaking, could be one of the worst things you could ever have? What if I were to tell you that, spiritually speaking, having a clean plate might actually be dangerous to your soul? What does that mean? Well, Jesus is going to help us answer that question. Listen as we look at Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 37. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. In the previous verses, Jesus had been talking about the difference in having a soul that's full of the light of life or having a a dark soul. And the kinds of things he said would very much push away your your average good church-going person. And so this Pharisee was a super average good church-going person, and he invited Jesus over for lunch. So it's a little bit of a different scene here. It's, it's not completely odd, but it's a little different because the Pharisees were a little different. The Pharisees are very powerful in the community. The word Pharisee comes from a word that means separated. So they were separated from the regular people. They were a little higher up on the financial food chain. They got their picture in the, the social section a little more in the newspaper. And by all means, When it came to the son of Joe Carpenter here, they definitely were separated and superior to him. And so it's a little unique that Jesus got the invite, and it's also a little unique that Jesus accepted the invite. I mean, after all, the Pharisees were not charter members of the Jesus fan club. They weren't known for loving Jesus. They were known mostly for disgust and hatred toward Jesus. But Jesus did not hate them in return. We don't see anything from the text to say that the Pharisee's up to something, that he's, he's trying something, he's going to try to embarrass Jesus. It just seems as if he was intrigued with Jesus and wanted to have him over for a meal. And so Jesus walks into this nice man's home, and he walks by the, the line at the washroom, and he walks straight over to this nice man's table, and he starts eating this nice man's bread with his own dirty, grubby hands. At least at first glance, that's what it looks like, right? I mean, it looks like Jesus is being very rude according to what we have here that he just didn't go wash his hands. I mean, Jesus is breaking all the rules here, right? I mean, every missionary and evangelism training book in the world tells you to honor people's customs when they invite you over so that you might have a chance to talk to them about the gospel. But poor Jesus, Mary and Joseph never gotten him any of those books. He just had a subscription to the Handyman magazine, so he never knew anything about etiquette when it went to go eat at somebody's house. That's what it all seems like at first glance. At first glance, it seems like he didn't know how to take his shoes off at the door. He didn't know how to do the proper thing. But that's first glance. What's really going on here? Well, what's really going on is a little different from what we might think. This isn't a, a cleanup to honor the host family. This isn't cleaning up for supper. And this has absolutely nothing to do with hygiene. This washing here has everything to do with religious pride and religious snobbery. You see, this Pharisee and his Pharisee buddies, they had been out in the community. And they had brushed up against these contaminated people and had to get clean. 
contaminated. That sounds like a big word, right? I mean, this must have been something like getting sprayed down in a chemical lab, right? No, not at all. In fact, this washing process that Jesus bypassed, according to one scholar, was kind of like taking a a little pitcher and pouring the water over your fingers and, and over your wrist. And then doing it on the other hand. And then you know, putting your left hand in and taking your left hand out and put your left hand in and shaking it all about. And, and there was all kind of ritual you know, to this hand washing. And so this hand washing was something that they created so that people would know that I have been out around these people that don't follow God. I, I brush shoulders with these non-people who follow God. And now I'm going to do this ceremony so that everybody will know that I'm cleaned up and I'm cool again. And Jesus walked by that. There's still people around the world that believe in such ceremonies and rituals, and they define their life and their religion by these things. They really believe that the the way that they can stay right with God, they really believe that the way they can keep things good between them and God, or, or maybe the way that they can keep their karma balanced, is to do certain things at certain places at certain times on certain days in certain ways. The whole notion is I've just I've got to do this if I'm going to keep things right. Now that doesn't mean that every single sacred ceremony or tradition is wrong. It does mean this though. You need to be very, very careful with your traditions. You see, this tradition was not in the Old Testament. This ceremonial washing was nothing that God had told them to do. They made this up all on their own. And this Pharisee was shocked and surprised that Jesus didn't honor their tradition. He was a little concerned that Jesus would blow it off. You know, some people hear the word tradition and they begin to think of something that's old. But that's not always true. If someone were to tell you that you can't worship God unless you have a coat and tie on, they would be talking like a Pharisee. And likewise, if someone were to tell you, oh, our church is the coolest because you can wear skinny jeans and shorts, they're talking like a Pharisee. You see, traditions don't always have to be old. We're making new traditions every single day in our life, even if it's just the same thing you order at the same restaurant that you go to all the time. Traditions are always being created, and all traditions are not bad. Most of us know this, but your children love traditions. I mean, think of the things when you were growing up that you still do with your family at Christmas time. See, we're not anti-tradition, but we need to be wise with traditions, especially when it comes to religious traditions. Are they traditions that truly point to Christ? The Apostle Paul had something interesting to say about traditions, like the good religious traditions. He said this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. These things, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What does that mean? Well, I don't want a picture of thick-cut applewood smoked bacon. I don't want a picture of it. I want an actual piece of thick-cut apple smoked bacon. Bacon. That's, that's what I'm looking for. See, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to, to spiritual satisfaction, I'm not looking for a shadow of something that makes me feel better about God. I want the rock, I want the substance of my salvation. 
I'm not believing in a myth or a fairy tale or a legend. I'm believing in a real person who really lived and really died and really rose from the dead. I'm believing in the ultimate first responder who responded to my 911 call before I was even born. This Jesus, this Messiah that we sang of, this Jesus that we claim to follow, this is not just a ceremony. This is not just a ritual. See, when I begin to look at my life and I think about how Jesus works in my life, no, Jesus can't physically sit next to me in the coffee shop. But he captures my heart and my mind and my soul over and over again with every scripture that I read and every prayer that I pray over every cup of coffee that I drink. Jesus is as real as anything we can possibly imagine. And don't ever underestimate that just because you can't physically see him. This is no fairy tale. You see, I don't need a a ritualistic, ceremonial hand-washing to make me feel better about me and God. What I need is to be reminded that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for, to pay for, to absorb, to satisfy the penalty of sin so that people like me and people like you do not have to be spiritually destroyed. So we don't have to be emotionally destroyed, but rather that we can have life. And what kind of life? Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says this. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, maybe it'll help first to define sin. What is sin? Sin is breaking God's law. Sin is rebelling against God's law. Now, somebody might say, eh, I don't know, I don't like the word law. I don't think a loving God should have laws. It's, it's too constricting. I feel like a loving God should be tolerant and acceptable to everything and should just give tons of freedom on anything and everything in life. Think about this in terms of every other area of our life. Like right now, I think the laws of gravity are really cool. Because if it were not for the laws of gravity, I mean, I'm no Bill Nye the science guy, but I'm pretty sure that without the laws of gravity, all of us right now would be bumping in each other in the air, kind of like helium balloons on the ceiling. And so I think the laws of gravity are pretty good. And what if there were no speed limits? What if there were no stoplights? What if there were no stop signs? What if there were no laws for people who drive under the influence? Are those the roads you want to be out on? Yes, there are some laws that need to be added, and there are some laws that need to be taken away, and there are some unnecessary laws. Listen, the Pharisees were the kings of unnecessary laws. But there are laws in our lives that we desperately need just to function, just to live, just to move, just to breathe. So all law is not bad. And so when we look at the concept of sin, sin is breaking God's law. God's law is good. It's perfect. It's holy. So What does that look like? What does it look like to sin? What does it look like to break God's law? The Apostle Paul was writing to some people in a place called Galatia, and he was trying to describe sin to them, and he he was calling it the deeds of the flesh. And these are the kind of things that he used in his description. Sexual immorality, verbal immorality, financial immorality, public indecency, 
what you wear, the jokes you tell, the bumper stickers you put on your car. He wrote things about loving to argue with others, loving it, loving being hostile with others. He wrote about selfish rivalry. He wrote about losing your temper on a regular basis all the time with just about anything you can think of. He wrote about hating when good things happen to other people. He wrote about fighting to get your own way. He wrote about abusing alcohol, abusing drugs. He wrote about having a life that's defined by wild late night partying. I mean, that's a pretty good picture of sin. Some of those you go, oh, I've never done of those. And some of those you know mark every day of your life. So we all struggle with sin. There's no doubt about that. And there's a lot of clarity about what it means to sin. But the beauty of that is this, that when Paul says we need to be dead to sin, all of those things that I just said, we need to be dead to those things. Those things don't rule and run our lives anymore. So how does that happen? How do we we live as if we're dead to those things? It's really easy. All you have to do is get a pitcher of water and just pour water over your fingertips and down on your wrists and do it on the other side and everything's good. See, that's crazy, but that's exactly how this Pharisee thought. He thought that his ceremonies and his rituals were enough. He thought that was how things got right between him and God. He wasn't saying it out loud, but it's how he thought about everything. And he was shocked that Jesus didn't go along with this tradition. Now notice I said he didn't say it out loud, but Jesus knew what he was thinking. And so Jesus responded. Listen to what he said. Verse 39. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. So imagine I'm at my coffee shop, and I order a cup of Americano, and I say, You know what? I don't want the old biodegradable, recyclable, cardboard sleeve cup that you can throw away. Give me a real mug. And boy, they grab this shiny white mug and and they fix my drink. And I go over and sit down and I take my first swig and all I feel on my lips and see with my eyes is rainbow sprinkles. That's all I see. Because I've got the cup left over from the last person that had the cup, which was the kid that got the birthday-flavored frappolati smoothie or whatever it was, and all that old stuff is still in my cup. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to want to drink the rest of my coffee with all that in my cup. See, the Pharisees were fantastic at looking great on the outside, but Jesus said their hearts were dirty and filthy. They had this great, clean, public image, but inside they were rotten. In fact, Jesus says they were wicked robbers. (laughs) I mean, come on, Jesus, tell us how you really feel. Wicked robbers on the inside. Meaning they would make a donation to charity so they could get a picture taken with the big fake, you know, check and and get in the paper, but they wouldn't even make sure that their own elderly parents had food. They were kind of people that would would go through town and they'd shake hands and kiss babies and write nice notes to people who had gone through difficult times, but then they were awful. They were harsh. They were abusive to their family and the people that worked for them. There was a disconnect. They had one face that didn't match what their heart really said. Jesus was and is the Son of the Most High God. He is pure, He is holy, and He is perfect in love and mercy. So He's giving a completely different 
picture here. They wanted an outside ceremonial cleaning to make them feel good about themselves. And Jesus gives the opposite picture altogether. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. See, Jesus didn't come into this Pharisee's house and go, Eh, we've been around these people that don't follow God. Please pour the water on my hands. Now, he was the exact opposite. He wasn't coming trying to, to live out phony rituals to avoid lost people. Jesus came to die for lost people like me and lost people like you. He came to die and give his life to rescue rebellious, law-breaking sinners like me and you. That's who he is. And he also came to rescue law-keeping sinners like that Pharisee. But the Pharisee couldn't see it. He had the whole Old Testament that he had read and studied and memorized all these things about the coming of the Messiah, all these things about the Messiah that's sitting right in front of him, but he can't see it. He's blind because he's so worked up about the hand washing. It's easy for us to maybe cast a stone at him, but the reality is if some of us look at our lives, we'll see that we act the same way sometimes. In my reading this week, someone noted that they've seen people who are more passionate, Christians, more passionate about trying to get someone to quit smoking than they are passionate about helping that person find the beauty and the majesty and the power and the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Look, I highly recommend that it's a fantastic, wonderful idea to quit smoking. But what does it gain a chain smoker? To be freed from the power of nicotine and die and perish in their sins. Listen, we have tons of emotional and and medical and financial and, and legal and practical and spiritual things in our life that we need to quit. We all do. But Christianity is not about quitting things. Christianity is not primarily about stopping something. Christianity is primarily about starting something. When God quickens a person's heart to the gospel and that person responds with putting their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ, something changes and they begin to start doing some things. They start seeing that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. They start seeing that Jesus is the only true lover of their soul. They start obeying Jesus because he's the king of kings. They start obeying Jesus because he died for them. They start obeying Jesus because they are compelled with love, by his love and with their love for him. We have this picture of what it means for something to change on the inside before it changes on the outside. See, the Pharisee, he, he only had the outside changes. He only had the look of goodness, but his heart had not been captured by the gospel. And Jesus is going to expand on this some more. Look at verse 40. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Jesus says, don't, don't give for your resume. Don't give to make the nightly news. Don't give for the tax write-off. Just just give from your heart. Let what you do and who you are be an overflow of the love of God pouring out of you into the lives of others. Let what's happening on the inside be what comes out instead of just doing 
on the outside. But see, the Pharisees, they, they didn't know how to do that. That's not how life worked for them. And Jesus is getting ready to point that out a little more strategically. Look what he says in verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees. Listen, if I eat four dozen donuts before I come to church on Sunday morning, which I've never done that, by the way, but if I were to eat four dozen donuts before I come to church on Sunday morning and my wife looks at me and she says, woe to you, Dal, for eating four dozen donuts before you go to church. You know, she's not being mean, you know. What I have done has invited a, a little bit of verbal or at least a look of accountability. So a woe is a declaration of judgment that is deserved. And so Jesus is giving these Pharisees three woes in this conversation. Look at the first one, verse 42. For you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Can't you just see like, you know, a Pharisee sitting at this table, you know, in the kitchen? And he counts out, you know, 10 little mint leaves. And he picks up one, he sticks it in this little envelope, closes it over and writes on there, for God. I mean, that's a good thing. That's a noble thing. It's an obedient thing. But Jesus says, you know, you'll do that one external thing, but then you won't give one of those other nine mint leaves to Betty Sue next door because she's making her mint sweet tea for the neighborhood cookout. You, you are greedy and won't give it away. Or Jesus says, you know, you'll do this one good external thing, this, this tithe, so to speak, that's a great idea, it's a good thing. Keep doing that, but then you refuse with all the other herbs and all the other vegetables in your garden to give anything to the soup kitchen down the street. You see, the thing about the Pharisees is they would do the religious thing, but they wouldn't do the right thing. We're like that. We can act like we're not. We can pretend that we're okay and, and everything's, but we are just like that. We are so inclined to do the thing that makes us feel good publicly or, or might give us some recognition, but the right thing sometimes will never get your name in public. The right thing is sometimes something that nobody but God will see, and the right thing makes you uncomfortable. The right thing sometimes means you stay in church when the air conditioner doesn't work. <laughs> and a lot of y'all did, so thanks. Jesus gives a second woe. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Now, this isn't like front row seats at a sold-out Broadway show or, or box seats at a big championship sporting event. No, these seats would have been on stage, the Pharisees, boy, they, they loved to be on stage. They, they wanted you to see them. And they loved when you used the fancy titles with them. Oh, holy Reverend Doctrinus, I saw you yesterday in church on the stage. I loved your pocket square. Oh, my, it, it was just really, really nice. You are the best dressed holy Reverend Doctor I've ever known in my life. Boy, they love stuff like that. And Jesus says, woe to you because you desire that. Woe to you for wanting someone to recognize you. Woe to you for wanting attention, for doing anything, especially that which is good. Woe to you. And then he gives a third woe. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, 
and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. This is the harshest woe to me. See, in ancient times, if you walked over an unmarked grave, the people believed that you would be unclean and contaminated for some number of days. In fact, even in the Old Testament, we have God graciously giving some commands for the handling of a dead body. So the markers that were placed were there so that people would know, oh, there's a grave here, and I need to walk around this and, and not walk near it because then I'd be clean, I'd be unclean, and I'd be contaminated. And so this is how Jesus describes this last woe to them. I mean, this is pretty incredible. Jesus says, you guys, when you go out in town, you are actually contaminating people. I mean, think of how he's turning the table. So, so here's a guy who's upset because Jesus didn't do the ceremonial hand-washing that they do because they're contaminated by touching those people who weren't following God outside in the community. And Jesus says, actually, you're the contaminator. When you leave this house, you walk around this town, and you rub up against people, and you give them spiritual darkness instead of spiritual light because your religion is heartless and dark and dead. I think that's the worst one. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this, this Pharisee? What do we do with this conversation from Jesus? How does it apply to your life on July 10th, 2016? Well, maybe I'll answer that question by giving some more questions. Just take a moment on your own just to think through in, in the mirror, all of us in our own mirror, uh, these questions. Has your heart truly been cleaned by Christ? What would Jesus say if he came to your house for dinner? And what are people exposed to when they bump into your life? Has your heart truly been cleaned by Christ? What would Jesus say if he came to your house for dinner? And what are people exposed to when they bump into your life? I think if we can answer those questions, we've got a pretty good start on what we do with this. Afshin Ziafat was born to Iranian parents in Houston, Texas. When he was four years old, they moved to Iran, and the turmoil was so bad there that they ended up coming back a few years later. When he was in high school, he became a Christian, and immediately his family rejected him and condemned him. Years have gone by now, and he's now the pastor of Providence Church in Frisco, Texas. Late Thursday afternoon, Afshin went to Love Field in Dallas to go pick up his mom from the airport. On their way back, he noticed that traffic heading into downtown Dallas was stopped. Of course, at the time, he had no idea why. Then over the course of the last few days, we continued to be exposed to the events of this week from Louisiana to Minnesota, to Dallas. So what do we do with this? How do do we respond as people who claim to be followers of Jesus? Well, not just because he is a resident of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but more specifically because he is a believer and follower of Jesus. Afshin gives a few ways for us to think about this in terms of the gospel that I want to share in closing. He writes this. The gospel reminds us 
that even when we deserve the wrath of God, through Christ's death and resurrection, we received the love of God. Deserve wrath, get love. It is impossible to be truly captured by the love of Christ and respond with hate to those who have wronged you. It is unjust to receive unmerited grace and demand others to earn your mercy. The gospel compels me to identify with the outcast and the marginalized in my own society, to care for and champion the mistreated and the underprivileged. The gospel reminds reminds me that my Savior was unjustly murdered on a cross. It opens my mouth to speak out against injustice in our land. And the gospel reminds me that Jesus died to redeem a people from God from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and that's good news because that means that you and I are both included. And then he says this. So we can boycott, protest, and lobby for new laws. These are not necessarily bad things, and there is a time and a place for them. Ultimately, however, Jesus is the one who breaks down the walls between us. He is our peace by killing the hostility, starting with the hostility in my own heart, As the love of Christ penetrates a heart, the wall of hostility comes crashing down. Jesus is the only one who can break the cycle of hate. That's what we preach as Christians. And then he says this, I urge my fellow Christians to turn to the gospel and to let the love of Christ control your actions and your words. Take time to pray and think about what you are posting on social media. Ask yourself, are my words even subtly contributing to the cycle of hostility? Or are they lifting up the gospel and commending the love of Christ to people? From downtown Dallas to downtown Columbia to the deserts of the Middle East, to the dining room and dens of your home. Let us be the kind of Christians that are commending the love of Christ to people because Christ has cleaned and Christ has captured our hearts with his love. Let us truly be his people in a dark world.